At Woodside Bible Church, we gather each week to pursue God by studying His Word together. We live in a world full of information, literally at our fingertips. Among all the claims of truth in the world, it can be hard to separate fact from fiction. This is often the case when it comes to the Christian faith. Do we understand the truth of what we believe, and can we articulate it to others? In The Essentials, Why Truth Matters, we'll use the affirmations of the Apostles' Creed as a guide to teaching us the core doctrines of the Christian faith. Join us each week as we affirm the foundational truths of Christianity so we can stand on the bedrock of God's truth and share that good news with the world. We have confessed this morning, again, through uh, the words of the the Apostles' Creed, some statements about who God is and who we believe Him to be and what the Scripture says about God. And and this morning, we, we we come to the line that says, I believe in the Holy Spirit. As we've been working through the Apostles' Creed, we've Maybe you've noticed these sections that are there. We've talked about believing in the Father Almighty, creator of heaven and earth. We talked about believing in Jesus Christ, his only son, our Lord. And, and so it's right this morning that we, as uh, people that believe in the Trinity, the one God in three persons, that we would affirm and state today, we believe in the Holy Spirit. But maybe let me ask you, do you believe in the Holy Spirit? What does that mean that we would believe in the Holy Spirit? Who, who is He? What is He? What, what does the Spirit do? If, I think if we're honest this morning, for many Christians, uh, the Holy Spirit is very confusing to us. And we probably fall on one of two ends of an extreme. On the one hand, let me just let me quote Michael Byrd in his book, What Christians Ought to Believe, an introduction to Christian doctrine through the Apostles' Creed. He just sets the, the stage really well for this. He says, I say with no exaggeration that I have met Christians who seem to think of the Holy Spirit as something like Jesus' vapor trail or a mysterious and impersonal force that conveys God's presence or even a kind of heavenly buzz that falls on people when some funky psychedelic worship music is played. The way some people describe the Holy Spirit could just as well describe magnetism, mood rings, or Motown records from the 1960s. That's one extreme. And he says, there are other churches that are positively petrified of anything to do with the Holy Spirit, lest they themselves get too enthusiastic in their faith that they might start dancing in the aisles. That's probably not the extreme we fall to over here. Uh, we as Christians today have this fear, and we're, our fear about the Holy Spirit is either that we will be off in crazy land uh, concerning the Holy Spirit, or we're completely afraid that we'll be in crazy land. If we even exist, the Spirit is here, and that He is present. Bird concludes by saying this is catastrophic on so many levels, because if you don't have the Spirit, you don't have Christ. We need the Spirit like we need air in our lungs. And it's true, core to the Christian faith, every one of these statements that we've been professing and claiming in the Apostles' Creed are essential to the Christian faith. So to take any one of them away is to, uh, to walk away from Christianity as a whole. Core to the Christian faith is the belief in the Holy Spirit. So, so we have to ask a question, well, okay, what? Who is the Holy Spirit? What do we do with Him? And, and maybe more, more practically for us, the question that exists from these two extremes and from these two poles is, how, how do I know if I truly have the Holy Spirit? 
How do I know within my life that the Holy Spirit indwells me, that He exists within my heart and life and empowers me? See, maybe you have come to believe that it's the, what I'll call, supernatural experiences that are the sign that you have the Holy Spirit. You would say, well, there needs to be some exhibition of some supernatural power or greatness. So the speaking in tongues, the dancing in the aisle, the, the sporadic barking, whatever it is, there's some extraordinary signs. Those are the evidences that you have the Holy Spirit. Maybe you believe that. Or, or perhaps you're on the other side of it, and you're, like, you're so terrified of any of that sort of thing happening that you, as a Christian, you avoid the Holy Spirit altogether. Maybe you would prefer the Trinity of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Bible, but don't get the Spirit involved because who knows what's going to happen. But, but I think all of us as Christians would say, I think this is the case, and, and feel that the Spirit is essential to our lives. We need the Holy Spirit. I'm concerned that there's even a third group here among us, maybe the majority of us, that are so afraid that the Holy Spirit has actually overlooked us. You know you need the Holy Spirit, but you don't feel spiritual enough. You don't know how to, if I can put it in this language, you don't know how to access the Spirit or plug into Him or like any of that. So, so you just... You're confused, and you don't know, is the Spirit in my life? Does He, does he do anything? I've, maybe you've never done one of these miraculous signs, and so you're like, I don't, I don't think the Spirit has anything to do with me. Maybe I'm not spiritual enough or good enough, or, or I'm not saying the right things or performing the right way, and so I think He's just overlooked me and forgotten me altogether because I just don't have it all together. Well, I want us to go to Acts 8 this morning. We're in this passage, and this is a, this is a fun story. I mean, this is a weird one in the Bible for sure. It's not something, I've never preached this text apart from preaching it in the 9 a.m. service before, and so an unusual one for me and for us to look at. But I believe in this text there are some answers to those questions that we are asking, particularly the answer of how do I know if I truly have the Holy Spirit within me? And, and we'll come to that answer. But this story, like a good story, it's, I want to set it up in scenes this morning. So I'm going to take us to three distinct scenes that this passage has for us. And these scenes kind of begin to illuminate or, uh, or elevate for us. They bring clarity to some questions about the Holy Spirit in our lives. And so I'm just going to work through this passage uh, scene by scene and help us discern through the, through the things that are here how we can know if the Holy Spirit is in us, working in us, and how we can relate to Him well. So let's, let's do this. So scene one, let's start there. Scene one is about confrontation. It's about confrontation. And, and on the extremes here, we have a spectacle and we have the Spirit Himself. We have the spectacle and the Spirit Himself. And, and the question that we might ask is, who or what is going to be the thing that attracts and wins the hearts of the people of Samaria? So this is uh, located in the, the region of Samaria, as Luke is writing this in the book of Acts. And, and we're asking the question, who is it or what is it that attracts and wins the hearts of the people of Samaria? Really, this scene deals with our motivations concerning the Holy Spirit. What do we want from Him? What do we believe from Him? And so there's a confrontation. Are we after the spectacle or are we after the Spirit Himself? Now, now, let me place this scene in, and this story in the entire scope of what's happening here in Luke's uh, record of it in the book of Acts. The book of Acts is the story of the movement of Christianity through the church. 
It's, it's those who bear witness to Jesus Christ as raised and alive. Acts tells that story from the first moment, Jesus being raised to life again through, uh, through the spread of the gospel. And there's a really helpful way that Luke frames the entire book for us. He gives us the outline at the very outset. Actually, Jesus gives the outline. As Jesus is speaking to his disciples before he ascends to heaven, he says to, the, to them this. He says, stay in Jerusalem, and this is Acts chapter 1, verse 8. Stay in Jerusalem. He says, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, in all Judea, Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. So there's a, there's a real clear outline for the whole book here. This is how God is at work throughout the rest of the story. The Holy Spirit comes, a group of believers, He empowers them, and He empowers them to tell witness or to bear witness about Jesus, and there's a regional scope of this. The story starts, chapters 1 through 7, start with the ministry in Jerusalem and in Judea. That's where it's focused on. And then chapter 8 on goes through the ministry of Samaria, and then from that to the ends of the earth. And so it's a real clear pattern of how the Spirit works and empowers Jesus' people, the church, to share the gospel and see the movement of Christianity go on. So this Jerusalem phase in chapters 2 through 7 began with Pentecost, where the Holy Spirit does come and fall upon uh, the believers there in the city of Jerusalem. And they preach of Christ, they share of Christ, and the church starts and it grows and it begins to flourish. But But then opposition hits. The religious leaders, people who hate God, they are against the church. They're against the spread of the gospel. In chapter 7, you get uh, Stephen sharing the gospel and him being put to death, killed, stoned, martyred for his faith. And at the beginning of chapter 8, we meet Saul. And Saul is there approving of the execution of Stephen. And uh, the church is ravaged and scattered, verse 4. Those who were scattered went about preaching the word. And so now in chapter 8, we meet this ministry to Samaria, the next phase of the expanse of the gospel. And we meet a guy named Philip. Philip is one of the first deacons. You find him in Acts chapter 6, where he was appointed to serve uh, and to help the, the conflict that was there. And he's an evangelist. He's been sharing the gospel. And so we meet Philip. He went down to the city of Samaria. He proclaimed to them the Christ. This is verse 5. And the crowds with one accord paid attention to what was being said by Philip. So he has this very effective ministry. He, he preaches about Christ. He's telling them about Jesus. They're paying attention, and they're, they're, just, they're fixed on what he is saying. And they're seeing miraculous things, and they're, they're impressed. But in Samaria, there's not just Philip. There's another preacher. There's another guy who's got a ministry going. We've met him in verse 9. There was a man named Simon who had previously practiced magic in the city and amazed the people of Samaria, saying that he himself was somebody great. This guy was a sorcerer. He was one who used the means of the occult to attract a crowd, maybe demon-possessed, but he was was using magic and sorcery to, to promote himself, to do amazing signs, and even so much so to make himself famous. He was like, hey, look at me. I've got some supernatural spiritual power that is incredible and awesome. I can do all of this. You should really think I'm an impressive, incredible person. And when it says that he was saying he was somebody great, it's not just saying like, hey, I'm, I'm really cool. Like you, should, you really like me. He was saying that he was a cut above every other human being, perhaps even on the level of divine. He, he, he stood above and beyond everyone else as supernaturally gifted, supernaturally empowered 
He was somebody unique. And the city loved him. They loved Simon. They hung on his every word. Verse 10, they all paid attention to him from the least to the greatest. And they said something unique about him. They said, this man is the power of God that is called great. Now, now we might sit here and go, okay, well, what are they saying? You know, oh, this guy is somebody great. You know, he's somebody who's got God's power. No, the, the thing that they were saying about Simon in Samaria was very unique and specific to Samaria itself. They, they were saying and ascribing to Samaria, to, to Simon, that he was Yahweh. The term that the Samaritans used to describe Yahweh, or God, was the power of God that is called great. So they're saying he is great, he is God. He is so unique, so amazing. Friends, that's satanic power. That is satanic hold on a city. They're proclaiming this about this, this foolish trickster. Verse 11, they paid attention to him because for a long time he had amazed them with his magic. I mean, this is not just a long time in one sitting, but he had been in that city for a while, probably for years, doing these miraculous things, setting himself up as somebody great, even being proclaimed as divine. So on one hand, we have Simon, the satanic sorcerer, and on the other hand, we have Philip, the Christ-centered preacher. One is working through the satanic power of a spectacle, a show, a performance, the other is working by the empowering ministry of the Spirit of God to show and to proclaim Christ. Now you, can, you can feel it, right? There's going to be a confrontation between these two. Something's going to go down. Here it is, verse 12. But when they believed, this is the people of Samaria, when they believed Philip as he preached the good news about the kingdom of God and the name of Jesus Christ, they were baptized, both men and women. So it's like all of a sudden, Philip's ministry is winning out over Simon's ministry. Philip, and notice here what Philip is doing here. Notice the emphasis of Philip's ministry. There are signs and wonders, but that's not what Luke focuses on. He focuses on Philip's preaching of Christ back in, in verse 5. Philip went down to the city and proclaimed to them the Christ. And again, here in verse 12, they believed as Philip preached the good news about the kingdom of God and the name of Jesus Christ. And as they heard the good news, they were baptized, both men and women. So, so here's what happens. Philip preaches the gospel. He preaches Christ to them. They hear it. They believe. Their hearts are opened. They, they see the goodness of Jesus. They believed. And then they take the next step and are baptized. Uh, catch that order. It's a very important order theologically. To hear the gospel, to believe the gospel, and then be baptized. There it is. I'll just leave that uh, there for you. So that's happening in the, in the city of Samaria. People are believing the good news. They're coming to faith and they're getting baptized. And, and now all of a sudden the story turns and, and we're surprised. Verse 13, Simon himself believed. And after being baptized, he continued with Philip. And seeing signs and great miracles performed, he was amazed. Now somebody can profess that they believe and say, hey, I believe this to be true. And we take them on their word, say, okay, we, we look for that, and they can be baptized as well. But the question I think that, that we should look at or at least ask is, is, that truly, is, is Simon's heart truly changed? 
Has he truly been uh, born again and made alive by the Spirit? Is, is he a new man because of what Christ has done? Simon indicates that he's, been, he's believed, he's baptized. But notice here what Luke says about him. He is in awe of the signs and the miracles that are performed. He's stunned by the show that he sees. And I think that's a clue about the heart of Simon. He's attracted by the external things, the signs and the miracles, and the the external spectacle itself. But notice what's not being said here. Simon doesn't even say, Luke doesn't tell us about Simon. It doesn't say that Simon believed Christ or that he followed Christ or that he really had anything to do with Jesus. He believed and continued with Philip. He's interested in what Philip's doing. He's in awe of the signs and wonders that Philip is performing, not in the person that Philip is pointing to, Jesus. I think Simon is what we might call a spiritual groupie. You know what a groupie is, right? They're the, they're the people that kind of hang out with the, uh, the celebrity, hoping that the light of the celebrity kind of shines on them as well. Uh, if you talk to an athlete, and I, I've known several that have reached very high levels of competition in their lives, you'll find that there's these groupies that kind of hang around athletes as well. They want to hang out with them. They want to be cool with them. They hope that they get kind of some of the perks of being a friend of the athlete. But as soon as the athlete either gets too old to perform well or gets injured and their fame declines, the groupies disappear. They go off and find another athlete that they hope that the light can shine on them through uh, as well. Simon, I think, has that going on in his heart. And, And I think it's worth asking and looking at his life, it's worth asking What is it that drew us to be a Christian? I mean, Simon saw the spectacle. He saw the powerful works, the awe, the greatness. And that's what held his attention. If Christianity appeals to you because you see the external things of Christianity, those people look like the cool people. There's these powerful signs that are happening. Wow, there's this amazing movement going on. If you're looking at Christianity only for the external stuff, I believe you're looking at the wrong thing. Because Christianity is about Christ. Jesus is the center. Christianity is not about power encounters, not about spiritual experiences, not about inspirational quotations or gold dust or, whoa, the Holy Spirit or trinkets and tricks of religious commercialism. Do you want to know what the true test of any ministry's power is? It's this, do they make Christ the central thing? So friends, if the podcast you're listening to, or the books you're reading, or the Christian movies that you're watching, or the musicians that you're following, if they, are not, if they are not putting the spotlight on Jesus, if they're not focusing on Christ and what He has done in His life and death and resurrection, then they're after something else. Jesus said that the ministry of the Holy Spirit is to glorify the Son. John 16, 14, Jesus says, He, the Spirit, will glorify me, for He will take what is mine and declare it to you. So if you want to know the the true authenticity of a ministry or a church or a leader, where Jesus is spotlighted, where Jesus is lifted up, where Jesus is declared, that's right at the center of where the Spirit is at work. Where the focus is on the attractive charisma or the power or the people, that isn't the work of the Spirit. It's the deception of the spectacle. 
And that's because the Holy Spirit is a person, a person that we should know and commune with and relate with. He is not a power that we should plug into. May we never use that language. The work of the Holy Spirit is to spotlight Christ in our hearts. So if your heart is captivated by the external, by the speculative, by the, by the spectacle itself, ask yourself the question, do you have the Spirit? If your heart is captured by Christ, if your focus is on Christ, if your vision is on Christ, that is where the Spirit is at work. So scene one is about the confrontation. Are we after the spectacle or are we after the Spirit? Let's keep moving. Scene two. The story keeps going on. And here, we, we've got to talk about confusion here. Scene two is about confusion, namely the confusion over the question of how does a person acquire the Holy Spirit in their lives? Where does the Spirit come from? How do we get Him? Like, I want in on the Spirit because He's doing powerful things. But, but there's confusion about how we acquire the Holy Spirit. So let's go back to Philip's ministry in Samaria. It's going well. He's preaching. People are responding to Christ. They're believing. They're being baptized. All the external stuff of ministry, like, it's awesome. It's great. But there's something missing there in Samaria. There's a connection that's, that's not there yet. And it's, it's to ask the question, is what's happening in Samaria true Christianity? That was a concern that the, the apostles had. Like, this, this ministry, Philip's ministry there is something. But is it true Christianity? And so the focus shifts to the apostles' leadership and discernment. Verse 14, Now when the apostles at Jerusalem heard that Samaria had received the word of God, they sent Peter and John. The two lead apostles are dispatched to verify and to validate the stories that they've heard. They want to see the authenticity, the Christ-centeredness of the ministry happening in Samaria. And they come to Samaria and Luke records, and he says, they came down and prayed for them, prayed for these new believers, that they might receive the Holy Spirit. For he had not yet fallen on any of them, but they had only been baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. Now, this is a curious statement. It's a curious thing. Samaritans had heard Philip's preaching. They believed his message, and they were baptized, but they had not received the Holy Spirit. And I think this does raise a question for us today about how does a person receive the Holy Spirit? When does a Christian receive the Holy Spirit? Do we need some apostles to come in here uh, at some point and pray for us and lay their hands on us so that we would receive the Holy Spirit? Well, I'll answer that question in just a moment, but I will give you the short answer in that every believer in Jesus Christ at the moment of conversion are given the Holy Spirit. What happens here in Samaria is not normative across uh, every Christian place at every time. This is a once-in-a-time experience. This is what you might call the Samaritan version of Pentecost. It's very unique to what happens there. Remember how the book is structured. I shared this with us just a few minutes ago. Jesus says, you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem in, in, and in Judea and in Samaria and to the end of the earth. And I think there's that threefold uh, structure, that threefold movement of the gospel. Jerusalem, all Judea, Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. And that's what happened. The Jewish Christians in Jerusalem received the Holy Spirit at Pentecost, which we find in Acts 2. But the Samaritan Christians, they're asking the question, well, are we truly part of what the Jewish Christians are part of? Is this one faith, one baptism, one spirit, one God and Father of us all, or is this something different? And so here in this moment, God, by sending the Spirit in this way through the apostles, is confirming to the 
believers in Samaria and to the apostles, these Samaritan believers, they're with you as well. It's one church. It's one people of God. One movement of the Spirit. This never happens again in Samaria. It does happen a little bit later again in Acts when Paul goes to Ephesus and recognizes the Spirit has not been given there, and he prays and lays his hands on the people in Ephesus, and they receive the Holy Spirit. That's to the ends of the earth. But here is now this Samaritan Pentecost, if you will. So the apostles come, and they pray, and they lay their hands on them, and the people in Samaria receive the Holy Spirit. Now, this is a powerful and amazing moment, and, and we're getting captured up in that. But look with me at verse 18. Luke again now kind of shifts the story, and he goes, let's go back to our friend Simon. What's going on with him? Simon sees the Holy Spirit has been given through the laying on of the apostles' hands, and so he offers them money saying, give me this power also so that anyone on whom I lay my hands may receive the Holy Spirit. Simon is so impressed with what the apostles are doing, so awed at their their power and their work that he's like, "I I can buy that. Like, I want to be able to do that. I want people to be able to see me and see my power and see what I'm able to do and go, wow, Simon is incredible. And so he offers them money. I don't know how much. It would be an awkward conversation. Like, what's the spirit cost? You know, like 50 bucks, 100? Like, I can take a loan out. We can do a mortgage on this thing. But like, what's it cost? He sees the Holy Spirit as something that can be gained or purchased. And so the spirit becomes a commodity to possess instead of a person to know and to commune with. Here's where we need to understand the Holy Spirit better. You see, friends, the Holy Spirit is not a force to be tapped into. Don't think of it like Star Wars. Don't think of Him in that way. He's not an energy source to connect with. You do not need to perform particular incantations or or give certain offerings or find some certain melodic groove in order to experience or acquire the Holy Spirit. The Spirit is a gift from God. He has been sent from the Father and the Son. His purpose is to equip and empower believers to make much of Jesus and to become like Him. The Spirit is the gift of God. He is truly God. And He works to conform us and mold us to God. This is one of the concerns that I have about the charismatic movement. They they withhold the gift of the Spirit for every Christian. And they make... Acquiring the Spirit, a matter of some sort of spiritual practice or some sort of spiritual performance to acquire Him. So they talk about the baptism and filling of the Holy Spirit as something that you must do or you must tap into in order to have or possess Him. The Spirit becomes, in the way that they talk about and act about Him, He becomes a force to be manipulated, even to be monetized. And the heart of that isn't to glorify Christ but it's to put the spotlight on the person who's giving the Spirit or to put the spotlight on the performance of the person trying to get the Holy Spirit. Friends, the Holy Spirit indwelling you is a gift from God, which He gives to you when you believe and trust in Him. And He has given fully and completely. You lack nothing. The Spirit is received by faith when we trust the gospel message of Jesus Christ and Him, perfect sinless life, His death on our behalf and His resurrection 
from the grave. The Spirit is given. Paul raises this question in Galatians 3, verse 2. He says, let me ask you this. Did you receive the Holy Spirit by works of the law or the things you did or the mantras that you said or by hearing with faith? He says in Romans 5, 5, our hope does not put us to shame, but because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. The Spirit is given, not gained. So so let me give you some good news here. There is nothing you can do. There is no amount you can pay to gain more of the Holy Spirit. Instead, believe Christ. Draw near to Him. You'll be filled with the Spirit. The Spirit is the Father and the Son's gift of love to indwell you. Draw close to Him. Submit to Him. Rest in Him. Trust in Him. The Spirit is given, not gained. So scene one confronts us with what attracts us to Christianity. Is it the spectacle or is it the Spirit of God? Scene two in this story clarifies the confusion we have about how we acquire the Holy Spirit. But then three, scene three here takes us to, the, to the, really the root of it. How do I know the Spirit is working within me? How do, how do I know that He is there and that He is changing me? Again, it's a contrast. And a correction is brought here. So scene three is this correction. Peter corrects Simon. And he's, again, putting out two things. It's either a matter of religiosity or religious performance, we might say it that way, or it's a matter of repentance. How do you know you have the Holy Spirit living within you? Let's be corrected away from our view of religious performance as being the evidence of the Spirit within us. Peter says some very hard things to Simon in verse 20. Peter said to him, may your silver perish with you because you thought you could obtain the gift of God with money. You have neither part in this lot or matter for your heart is not right before God. Now we might bristle at that and go, whoa, Peter, like you're coming on way too hard here. How, you know, like gentle up, man, be soft, be soft. But, but Peter's okay in this because Simon's thinking here is satanic. He's thinking that God is a power for him to possess and to improve him. Peter is right to rebuke Simon. Your heart is not right before God. You've got the wrong heart. You've got the wrong motives. But catcher, Peter is not so hard on Simon to believe that Simon's a lost cause. He doesn't look at Simon and go, judgment on you, dude, bye. He has a word of correction for him, verse 22. Peter acts as a faithful minister here. When he sees somebody in sin, he sees somebody who's professing to be a follower of Jesus, and they're just walking in error, he he rightly says, repent. Friend, repent, therefore, of this wickedness of yours, this wrong motivation that you think you can acquire God through money. Repent of it. And, And he says, and pray, turn to the Lord, go to God, that if possible, and it is, that the intent of your heart may be forgiven you. He's like, take your your." bad thinking, your errant theology, your wicked heart, and repent and go back to God asking Him to forgive you. Oh, and He will. He will. Simon, your heart's in a bad place. You're wrapped up in a love for money and power, and you're thinking about God is way off, so repent and turn in faith to Jesus. That's the only way out. Verse 24 is the last we hear of Simon in this text. It's in the last we hear of him in the Bible. And I think it's a tragic verse. It looks okay on the surface. 
Simon answered, Pray for me to the Lord that nothing of what you have said may come upon me. You feel this sadness in his heart, right? You feel this contrition of like, he's just saying, oh, pray that that doesn't happen. Pray to the Lord. And we should follow Simon in that way. And when we are confronted with sin, when we are, when we are challenged and confronted, we should seek the help of others, invite others into our hearts and lives and say, would you pray with me? Would you pray for me in this? But notice here what Simon does not do himself. He says, hey, you pray for me. You talk to God on my behalf. But there is no statement of Simon turning himself to the Lord. Like, I can pray for you guys all day long, but unless you will go to the Lord, I can't do much for you on that end. Simon doesn't go to the Lord himself. He doesn't repent. He doesn't pray. He doesn't seek God's forgiveness for his own sin. He just wants somebody else to do it for him. Do you know what that is? It's religious ritualism instead of real repentance. It's, it's the sign that the Holy Spirit is not at work in Simon's heart. He hasn't received the Holy Spirit. He's not a true Christian because he just wants to go through the religious performance. He wants the ritual. Oh, prayer, repentance? All right, you do that for me. You cover that, and, and I'll be good. We'll move on. The Spirit works to bring us through repentance. The Spirit within us causes us to see our sin, to recognize our need, and to go to God seeking His forgiveness where we find it in Christ. That's where the Spirit is at work. In many ways, this gets down to the heart of Christianity and the heart of my, my heart and my concern for you as a pastor. I'm concerned that you might say, well, I believe in the Holy Spirit, but you make that profession based on your religious activity and your religious performance. You look to the external things, the performative religious actions. Perhaps you look at, oh, well, I'm giving, or, or I'm attending church regularly, or I'm fasting, or I'm doing the right things externally. And you believe or think that those things are the evidence of the Spirit working in and through you. The Spirit's work is evident in and through you. When there is conviction of sin and repentance and growing faith in Jesus Christ. Consider again Paul's words. He says, Galatians 3.2, let me ask you this. Did you receive the Spirit by your works, by the works of the law, by religious performance? Or did you receive the Spirit by hearing with faith? Does he who, he goes on to ask in verse 5, does he who supplies the Spirit to you, gives the Spirit to you, and works miracles among you, does he do so by the religious performance, the works of the law, the external stuff, or does he do so by your hearing and responding in faith? You see, the Spirit's work in our hearts and lives is internal, oftentimes hidden, oftentimes unseen, oftentimes so small that we don't even perceive that he's at work, but his work is to bring us to repentance. His work is to bring us to Christ and to make us like Christ. So where in your life you are convicted of your sin and you realize you need a Savior and you go to Christ with that, friends, that is where the Spirit is showing up in your life. That's where He's at work because His mission is to glorify Christ and to make you more like Christ. The Spirit works in you by you hearing the gospel word and believing the message of Christ and being transformed to be like Christ. So here's how I would answer this question. Is the Spirit at work in you? 
The Spirit is at work in you because He comes as the gift of God who changes hearts. He's the gift of God who changes hearts. And so where your life is being changed to be more and more like Christ, that's where the Spirit is at work in you. That's the good news. What does that look like? One last passage, Galatians 5, 22. Paul says the fruit of the Spirit, the evidence of the Spirit's work in your life is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against these things, there is no law. Like that's, you see growth in your life in those places? Do, do, do you yearn for greater love, deeper peace in Christ? Do, do you see evidence of, of kindness happening in your heart, goodness flowing out of you, faithfulness, the long obedience in the same direction, gentleness existing in your heart, humility, love, all these things, self-control. If those things are growing in you, guess what, friends? It's good news. The Spirit is at work in you. He's conforming you and making you more and more like Jesus. The Spirit reveals His work in your life when you are filled with the fruit that comes from faith in Christ. Why is that the case? Because the Holy Spirit is given as a gift when you believe and trust Christ and the work that He has done to change your heart so our lives become more like His. Let me close up this way. Friends, you don't have to perform some religious ritual or do some magical incantation to experience the Holy Spirit in your life. For us, the matter of the Spirit working in our lives is to hear, to be immersed in the Word of God, to, to, to take in the Scriptures and hear the voice of God through them and look to Christ. See, Jesus, that He came and lived the perfect life you could not, that He died in your place for your sin, that He was raised to life on the third day, and where you hear the Spirit saying, yes, you, repent, do it, believe, trust Christ. That's where the Spirit is at work. He is producing His fruit in your heart and life. And that's where you can be glad and be joyful that the Spirit does live and exist and work within you. I think the, far, the Spirit is at far more work in our lives than we would even imagine or know or see. And we might say, well, I don't see the spectacle. I don't see the miraculous signs. I don't see the speaking in tongues. I don't see the stuff. Look at the heart. Look at what God is producing internally in your life and the life of others to make you more like Christ. And I guarantee you, that is where the Holy Spirit is work. So we can say, I believe in the Holy Spirit. And may he continue to do his good and faithful work in us and through us. Let's pray. Spirit, may we not be so focused on the, the external the, the spectacle stuff, the things that the world might look at and say, wow, that's really where power is. But may, may we humbly receive your word. May we humbly believe the gospel and, and where you, Spirit of God, convict us of our sin. May you give us the capacity to repentance, to, to come to Christ and to, to be forgiven based on what he has done. And would you continue to conform us and shape us to be more and more and more like Christ? So in your work, in the small and in the invisible and the internal and in many of the unseen ways, might you make us more like Jesus? And might we enjoy you and know you? May our hearts not be hardened when we hear you speak.
but might we grow in all things as you are with us. And so we thank you, Spirit of God. Make us more like Christ, we pray in his name. Amen. Thank you for joining us as we study God's word together. We would love to hear how God is moving in your heart and get you connected into the Woodside Bible Church family. Head to woodsidebible.org connect to introduce yourself today.